our the subject of our message this morning, the title of it, given is The Perplexing Problem of Evil. And I need to begin the sermon this morning with a warning. We're going to wade into some fairly deep theological waters today. And I want to use our time today to dig into a question that has really perplexed theologians since the dawn of, of human history. It's a question that cannot be fully and totally answered. There, a sense of mystery always revolves around this subject, but it's a question that I think can be answered sufficiently enough so that we can respond to this question with a heart of faith and confidence in our God. And so what is this question in particular? The question is this. How can a good and sovereign God permit people to commit evil acts? How can a good and sovereign God permit people to commit evil acts? Essentially, why is there evil in this world? If God is good, which he is, how can he possibly permit evil to be so prevalent in this world? And, and if God is totally sovereign, which he is, how, how is he not somewhat responsible for, for this, the incredibly wicked and atrocious things that happen across our land? How can a good and sovereign God permit people to commit evil acts like the Holocaust? Or genocide in Darfur, or Bosnia, or Cambodia, or Rwanda? What about terrible acts of terrorism? Like 9-11, or the more recent bombings in, uh, in Boston during the marathon. How can a good and sovereign God permit these things to happen? How can the, the countless acts of violence and crime that occur across our nation every day. How can God permit that? Robberies, rapes, murders, kidnappings, mass shootings. On a smaller scale, what about the husband who walks out on his family? Or the single mother who, who quietly abandons her baby in a dumpster? What about you and me? As we sin against one another? As we gossip or slander each other? As we steal or mistreat? As we lie and deceive? As we think thoughts we shouldn't as we feel emotions that are inappropriate. How can a good and sovereign God permit people to commit evil acts of all forms? It, it, wouldn't it just make sense for God to put an end to all of this? I mean, he hates evil, right? So, so how can he stand to see these evil things happen? He has the ability to stop it all right now. So, so why doesn't he? Theologians call this question, the pro, or these questions really, the problem of evil. And evil is a serious theological problem indeed. Both the fact that evil has come into existence in the first place and the fact that evil continues to exist and permeate our world. And this problem, it challenges two fundamental attributes of God. His goodness and his sovereignty. Both of which seem to be at odds with the existence of evil in the world. We cannot deny these two key attributes of God. God is unquestionably good. Which means that everything God is and does and wants, it is worthy of approval. It means that, that God is, is, is uh, nothing in God is undesirable. Nothing in God is questionable. Everything God is, does, and wants, it is beneficial. It is worthy of praise. And the Psalms regularly affirm this when they read Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Or Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is holy and unquestionably good. So how can a God who is, is incredibly and glorious good, how can he tolerate evil? Which is by definition the opposite of goodness. Why would a good God permit evil to come into existence in the first place? And God is also undeniably sovereign. Which means that he is supreme over all things. 
God is ultimately in control of all things. God's sovereignty means that he sits in dominion over this world. He has absolute power and control over it. There's nothing that happens that he, he, he cannot control. There's no problem he cannot solve. There's no detail that escapes his knowledge. There's nothing, no one that is a, a threat to his reign or to his rule. And God's sovereignty means that he can and that he does act at any moment, at every moment to bring about whatever he wholly wills. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works everything out according to what he wants to see happen. Or Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, every, every roll of the die, the number that comes up, that is something that God is working to orchestrate towards his purposes. Or Matthew 10, 29, Jesus speaking. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And so God is in supreme and utter control of the entire universe. Not even the death of a sparrow happens without his knowledge and will. There is not one event, occurrence, disaster, circumstance, choice that happens over which God fails to say, I reign over that. I have dominion over that. I have control over that. God towers over creation as the supreme and sovereign Lord. So how can a God who is absolutely sovereign avoid responsibility for evil? In both evil's entrance into creation in the first place and the fact that evil continues to exist and permeate all areas of life. And so here's the crux of our problem. God is ultimately in control of all things. He is sovereign and he is also preeminently good. But evil things happen. And this might lead us to conclude then, well, perhaps God is not really good. After all, God's clearly permitted evil to come into existence in the first place. And he clearly permits evil to continue today. How can he be good? Or or perhaps God is not really sovereign. After all, you think he would stop the evil if he could, but, but he doesn't. And so perhaps he's not really in control after all. You see the problem. Let me illustrate the problem this way. There was an interesting news story that broke this week. And a photograph was distributed online of a Taco Bell employee that was doing something that was, shall we say, improper. Here's a picture of it. Maybe you've seen uh, this photo. There was a bit of national outrage against this photo, and I'm sure you can see why. It's the same reasons why there is some little outrage in this room. How many of you are a little uncomfortable go to Taco Bell now? This, 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 this is arguably an offensive, wicked act. Now, to the company's credit, they issued a statement saying these taco, taco shells were not intended to be served. They're actually on the way to the dumpster, whatever you think about that. But let's imagine for a moment if I was the general manager of this particular store, restaurant, where this occurred. And this, this, this event happened on my watch. Either I would be a terrible manager who was not at all in control of the things that were happening in, this, in my store and the, the employees under my, my control, my, my sovereignty, so to speak, or I was a morally corrupt manager because I was permitted, permitting my employees to engage in acts such as these. And God is the sovereign manager of this world. And so how can a good God permit evil over, in a world over which he reigns? Now, as I've said, theologians have been wrestling with this question for centuries, and 
In doing so, many different attempts have been made to try to answer uh, these questions and make sense of them. And so let me share with you first two common answers to these questions, which in my opinion are not convincing theologically. They are not biblically coherent. And so first two misguided, commonly misguided answers, and then after these I will attempt to provide what I think are the correct theological answers to this question. So first two misguided answers. Here's the common first one. The presence of evil in the world is necessary for genuinely loving relationships. It's necessary for genuinely loving relationships, both between individuals, uh, but more importantly between people and God. This answer claims, then, that the existence of evil is somehow necessary in order for us to have the most deep and meaningful relationships that we possibly can uh, with God. Now, the respo- this, this response might seem a little odd or weird at first, but he, let me explain the logic behind it. Isn't the love that you have for somebody, isn't it greater if you choose to love that person rather than being kind of coerced to love them? Isn't a marriage relationship better if you choose to, more noble or whatever, more valuable? If you choose to enter into that marriage relationship yourself rather than just being arranged, uh, having that relationship arranged for you. That's kind of the thinking. So imagine if the love I have for my wife was, was somehow due to some magic love potion I drank. She secretly slipped some, some magic love potion into my beverage, which for the record didn't happen. In fact, I was trying to probably play some magic love tricks on her. She was running away from it, probably with good reason. But suppose that wasn't the case. She spiked my drink with a magic love potion, and I drank it, and it suddenly made me love her. And now, now that love would still be valuable and precious, certainly, but wouldn't it be greater if I chose to love her myself? If my love for her was not due to some coercive magic potion, wouldn't that be a greater love? But in order for me to be able to make that choice, I have to have the ability to not to love her. To be able to make the choice not to love her. In order to be faithful to her, I also have to have the ability to be unfaithful to her. And one reason why my decision to be faithful, to be married in the first place, is so valuable is because I could have chosen not to marry her. And the ability to say yes or no is necessary to have a real choice. And the real choice is necessary to have that relationship have maximum meaning. And that's the logic behind the answer. And let's apply that then uh, logic to our relationship with God. Wouldn't our relationship with God... And faith in him be more valuable if we could choose to reject him. This perspective says that it does. And therefore, God permitted evil to come into this world because he wanted people to make a choice. He wanted to give them the ability to reject or to love him. He wanted to give them the ability to choose righteousness or unrighteousness. Because this choice was necessary if God was really going to have a genuine, rich, meaningful relationship with his people. And so God permits people to have this choice, righteousness or unrighteousness, uh, faith or disbelief, love of God or disobedience. And, and this potential is said is necessary for a relationship with God to be truly wonderful. Now that's one attempt to answer this problem, but it has a critical error in it. And I think essentially the premise itself is faulty. The premise that is this, if the ability to sin and commit evil is necessary for us to have a deep and meaningful relationship with God, then Adam and Eve, before the fall, couldn't have had a deep and meaningful relationship with God. They had no experience of evil before the fall, yet few would argue that their relationship with God before the fall was somehow insufficient. In fact, I would think if you asked them today, if you were able to ask Adam and Eve, hey, hey was your relationship with God better before the fall or after the fall? I, I think it's pretty obvious they would say it was much better before. Before we had this ability to walk away from him and, and sin. 
But even more so, think forward now to the eternal state. Will people in the new heavens and the new earth have the ability to say, God, I don't love you. Jesus, I choose to reject you. Will there be the occasional person in heaven who, who, who rejects God and says, I want nothing to do with you anymore. Go ahead and send me down to hell. By no means. Those who believe in Christ, they're granted eternal life. Not conditional life, not temporary life. Eternal life, which means that they are, are kept eternally secure for all time by God's hand. And they do not have the ability to rebel or to deny him in that place. That choice will not really be an option for us. Yet it seems obvious in the eternal state we'll have an incredibly rich and rewarding dynamic relationship with God as we see him for who he is with our own eyes. And even though we won't have the ability to walk away from him, then we will still cherish and enjoy an incredible relationship with him. And that is one reason why I personally reject the logic behind this answer to this problem. It doesn't make sense. The presence of evil in the world is not necessary for genuinely loving relationships. It won't be necessary for genuine loving relationships in the new heavens and the new earth. It wasn't necessary for Adam and Eve, both between themselves and with God before the fall. And therefore isn't necessary for us now. So I reject that first common answer which is given. Here's the second. And it suggests that God is not actually in control. That God is not actually sovereign over creation. It's the perspective that there are two forces in this world, good and evil. And that these forces are somehow fighting it out. They're duking it out. They're trying to one-up one another. It's the, the perspective that's often labeled as dualism, which says that good and evil are two ever-present forces that are genuinely competing against each other. It's really the perspective of the Star Wars mythology. You know what I'm talking about? Whereas there's the light side and the dark side. Right? And both are fairly equal forces in the world fighting fighting for control and influence and dominion. And if you were to take kind of this mythology, this perspective, and apply it perhaps to the drama of redemption, you might think that one day, before the creation of the world, God was sitting around wherever he was, and he said, you know, I'm going to go ahead and create for me this place called Earth. I'm going to place on that Earth, you know, two people. I'm going to call them Adam and Eve, and they will bear my image and glorify me. And then Satan comes along, and he says, hey, that's a nice little creation you got there, God. But you know what? I'm going to go ahead and cause those people to hate you and turn away from you. And God would say, well, okay, Satan, I'm going to still care for them and cause them to multiply and spread my image throughout the earth. It would be imperfect, but but, but, but it'll still spread throughout my whole whole realm. And Satan says, well, I'll go ahead and corrupt them even more and cause them to be incredibly wicked so that they just hate you and detest you and you bore it. Well, then I'll go ahead and drown them, but I'll save a few in a boat. And through them, I'll go ahead and repopulate the whole world now with people again who bear my image. Well, I'll go ahead and corrupt them too. And I'll cause them to bow down to all kinds of pagan gods and all that and forget all about you. Well, then I'll raise up my servant Abraham. And together through him, I'll call together just a select group of people who will be my chosen people. Well, I'll corrupt them too. In fact, I'll bring them off into captivity in Egypt. Put them under the oppressive yoke of Pharaoh. Well, then I'll raise up my servant Moses. And he'll come and rescue my people and pull them out of captivity in Egypt. Well, I'll chase them with Pharaoh's army all through the Red Sea. Well, I'll drown them too. Back and forth we go, fighting against one another. Well, Satan says then, well, I'll go ahead and cause them to worship the golden calf and all these other idols. Well, I'll give them my law. I'll teach them what it means to love and, and follow me. 
Well, I'll go ahead and corrupt them and cause them to forget. Forget all about your law. Well, I'll raise up judges and other righteous people who will lead my kingdom. Well, I'll go ahead and lead them astray. In fact, I'll have your people carried off into captivity in Babylon. Well, I'll go ahead and bring them back. Restore for them in this place, in this temple, and renew for them a commitment to my law. Well, I'll bring the Romans down, and they'll oppress them and subject them so that you totally, uh, they totally forget about your goodness and care for them. Well, then I'll send my son. Well, then I'll kill him. All right, Satan, I'm going to go ahead and raise him from the dead. He'll send to my right hand in heaven, and through him there'll be new life, resurrected life for all my people who believe in him, and I'll raise them up and call them to the church, and they will fill the earth and, and glorify my name. Well, maybe I'll kill them too. All right, Satan, then I'll go ahead, and I will send my son back, and he will fight against you and bind you in shackles and chains, cast you down in the eternal pit where there'll be great weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then I'm going to restore for myself a new heavens and a new earth where my righteousness and my glory will reign forever so there. Now, that is not how it works. That is not at all how it works. That may be what happens, but that's not how it works. God and Satan are not trying to duke it out and one-up one another. Good and evil are not two cosmic forces that are somehow at odds fighting against each other. God is sovereign, which means that no evil act happens apart from his holy will. He is not surprised by evil things that happens. He's not reacting to evil, doing his best to limit its effects. He's not threatened by it. He's not stressed out by it. He's not challenged in the least by its existence. God is absolutely sovereign. And he could eradicate all the evil in this world in a moment with a word. And he sees all the evil happening. And he has complete and total control of it. It doesn't cause him to sweat or despair or react in any way. Because he is the Lord. Nothing threatens his sovereignty. Nothing happens that he does not permit to happen. You see, there's a wonderful book in the Bible that gives us an important picture into God's relationship with evil. And and that is the book of Job. We would always be a little bit in the dark as to God's purposes for evil and God's relationship with Satan if it wasn't for the book of Job. And in the book of Job, we see Satan coming before God. And and in the opening verses of this book, this is what we read. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Here we see in this exchange, God asks Satan, what have you been doing? And Satan says, I've been running around on the earth, just causing all sorts of trouble here and there. God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the face of the earth. He's blameless and upright. And God allows Satan to go and inflict upon Job all sorts of suffering, terrible sores and, and legions, and in that, and death of his family, and all that, we see that Job suffers uh, tremendously. But in all that hardship, he never sins or curses God. And the book of Job is a wonderful picture of, of the persevering faith amid adversity. But the point of these opening verses is really to show that Satan can do nothing unless God enables him to. Satan has to ask permission. He's not free to do whatever he wants. He's, he's not an equal and opposing force to God. Satan is a finite, created being. God is an infinite, eternal, sovereign Lord. 
who made the entire universe. We have much more in common with Satan than Satan has with God. He's finite and limited. God is infinite. And even in his rebellion and evil, Satan is under the sovereign reign and control of God. Therefore, there is not one evil act, not one wicked choice that God cannot stop from happening. There is not one horrific act of corruption or depravity that God himself does not permit. But how can a good and sovereign God permit people to commit evil acts? How can he permit Satan to go off and cause so much harm and damage? It's wrong to answer this question by saying that God is not really in control of things. And it is also wrong, I think, to answer this question by saying that God somehow needs evil because it's necessary for people to have a genuine relationship with him. They have to have this certain type of choice. And so, so what's, the, the, what's the correct answer to this quandary? As I've said, there's two main aspects to this theological problem. First, how can a good and sovereign God permit evil to exist in the first place? And second, how can a good and sovereign God permit evil to continue and to so completely infiltrate his creation? So let's, let's begin by considering the first question. How can a good and sovereign God permit evil to exist in the first place? If God created everything, did he create evil? And how can a good God create evil? Now, the answer to this question is largely philosophical, somewhat theological. And the answer really hinges on this question, well, what really is evil? I mean, we all see the effects of evil. We all see things that we can classify and label as evil. But what is evil in its essence? What is the, what is the core? Uh, what is at the core of what evil is? And I want to suggest to you something that might seem odd. But hang with me for just a moment while I explain. I want to suggest to you that really there is no such thing as evil that there is really no substance or concrete thing called evil. Rather, I suggest to you that evil is really just the absence of goodness. In other words, evil is not really a real thing. It's not a created thing. Evil is just a lack of something which should be there instead. So let me illustrate. Suppose I have a hole here in my shirt. A big hole. Now, what is a hole? Is a hole really something tangible? Is a created thing? No, a hole is simply just an absence of cloth. It's an absence of something. I, I make a hole by getting rid of cloth. The hole, the hole is of itself. It's not really anything. It is a reality, but, it, but it's not a created thing. Or what about the vacuum in outer space? What is a vacuum? Well, it's, it's merely defined simply by an absence of air and by all, of all matter. You take all air and matter out, and what do you get? You get a vacuum. Or... What about cold? Is cold really something? It sure feels like something, doesn't it? Certainly days here in northwest Indiana, it definitely does. But you know what? Cold, cold really isn't anything. Cold is really just the absence of heat. Cold is just simply what results when heat is drawn out of something. This is how refrigerators and freezers work. They don't work by manufacturing cold. They work by extracting heat, and ventilating heat out. And the result of doing that is that then it gets cold. That's why you can get to a point called absolute zero where you can't get any colder because you have removed all the heat out of a particular system or environment. The result is, well, you can't get any colder. All the heat's gone. But you can never get to a point that you can't stop getting hotter because heat is a real thing. You can continue to add heat, and you can constantly get hotter, but you can eventually get to a point you got all the heat out, and you can't get any colder. See? Because cold really isn't anything, but heat is. Or what about darkness? See, there are such a thing. There is such a thing as rays of light. Light is a real substance, but what is darkness? 
Is there such a thing as darkness? No. Darkness is just simply what happens when there's no light around. And what is evil? Evil is not really anything. It's merely just a vacuum of goodness. Evil is what happens when goodness retreats and there's a hole. It's a void. It's an absence. Just as a hole or darkness isn't really anything, evil isn't anything. It's just simply the absence of goodness. And therefore, God did not create evil because evil is not a created thing. It's not a thing God created. Rather, evil is just the absence of good. And when God made this world before the fall, what did he declare it to be? He declared it to be good, very good, perfectly good. His goodness permeated every single corner and facet of creation. But what happened in the fall? The world, that goodness, it got holes in it. It became less dense. God's goodness retracted in some way. Pockets appeared where there wasn't perfect goodness. And when Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit, what did that do to them? It gave them knowledge of the difference between good and evil. In other words, for the first time, they could actually conceive of a reality without perfect goodness. And with that knowledge came the ability to push that goodness out, to create holes. And as such, they did, and they sinned. And we push that goodness out ourselves every day. And the nature of fallen humanity, therefore, is not that we have this evil essence within us that needs to be expunged. It's that we have this ability and this knowledge to keep God's goodness from permeating every aspect of our being. And even truly the inability to have God's goodness permeate every aspect of our being because of this understanding. And so, as such, we're corrupt and we're in need of grace. So how can a good and sovereign God permit evil to exist? How is he not morally responsible for the existence of evil in this world? This is partly answered by affirming that evil is not something that God created. Rather, evil is just something that came about because God permitted his goodness to retract, to get holes in it. God did not create darkness, but there are places where God does not permit his light to shine. And now that helps to answer the question somewhat, but it's not really fully satisfactory. Because if you think about it, why would a good and sovereign God allow his goodness to retract in the first place? Why would, he, why would he even allow this vacuum of evil to exist? To answer that question, we need to consider more the second aspect of our problem, which is this. How can a good and sovereign God permit evil to continue and fully infiltrate his creation? Or, why not create a world where his goodness could not retract? Why not create a world that was incorruptible? Surely God could have done that. Why didn't he? Or, or, or why didn't he just start out in the eternal state of the new heavens and the new earth? Why go through this whole cosmic drama of redemption, of, of having people who fell into sin, and then having all these centuries of suffering and hardship, and having sending Christ through, so that through him there could be creation restored to its intended order? Why, why go through this whole drama? Why not just start at the end point? Answering all this will require us to actually look at some rather hard and difficult passages. And in particular, we need to consider some passages that demonstrate that God, in some instances, purposefully wills evil to happen. Some instances, he purposefully wills evil to happen. So, for example, Exodus 10.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
God is responsible for Pharaoh's heart being hardened against him. And, and having a hardened heart against God is not a good place to be. That's, a, that's an evil place to be. And, and here God has purposefully willed Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's heart to be that way. Or Judges 9.23. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Much like the interactions now here we see, uh, in this verse we see similar to the interaction that God had between Satan and the book of Job, now God is instructing an evil spirit to go and cause rebellion and treachery amongst the leaders of Israel. And that's evil. And God is purposefully willing it to happen here in this verse by sending an evil spirit. Or 1 Samuel sixteen fourteen. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Again, God sends an evil spirit to torment and to harass Saul. God purposefully willed this evil to happen. Or 1 Kings twenty-two twenty-three. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Another example of God purposefully sending an evil spirit to cause lying deceit. This was evil, and God purposefully willed this evil to happen. So what do we see here in these verses? What we see is we see God purposefully willing evil to happen. God directly hardening hearts. God, God sending an evil spirit, putting a lying spirit in the mouths of prophets. He causes people to wander away from him. God is utilizing evil. How can he do that? How can a good God do that? First, it's important to see that in these texts that none of them picture God actually doing evil. God does not lie himself. He does not commit evil acts himself. He does not have a hardened heart himself. Nowhere in Scripture do we see God actually doing evil. Nowhere. Nowhere does God actually commit evil. He cannot commit evil himself. If he did, he would cease to be good. But he can, apparently, direct others to commit evil. Because we see God on many occasions, those were just a few, purposefully willing evil to happen. Think again of the instance with Job. God did not himself torture Job and cause all the hardship upon him, but he did explicitly permit Satan to do it. So never does God actually do evil, but he can and does purposefully will it to happen. How can this be? How can a good God do this? The answer to that is actually very simple. God purposefully wills evil to happen because he uses evil to accomplish good. He purposely wills evil to happen because he uses evil to accomplish good. In each of these instances where God purposefully willed evil, if we study the context of these verses, we see that God is using evil to bring about a good result. He's using evil to bring about a judgment that is deserved, or he's using it to bring about a leadership transition that he wants to see happen. Or in the case of Pharaoh, notice what the text says, Exodus 10.1, And the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine among them. There's the purpose reason right there. God hardens Pharaoh's heart because he's not quite ready for Pharaoh to release the Israelites from captivity. Why? Because God wants to display his power through the working of many miracles and plagues upon the Egyptians. And why would he do that? Basically to establish that he himself is real and the sovereign Lord worthy of worship. He wants Pharaoh to be obstinate against him. So he's the context to display these incredible realities about who he is. Or let's consider the story of Joseph. You know the story. Joseph's brothers were jealous of Joseph, primarily because of his father's incredible favoritism towards him. You know that fancy, fancy coat he had. 
And so they wickedly captured Joseph and sent him off into slavery in Egypt. And there Joseph was a slave for many years. He eventually suffered in jail for, for several years. He could have faced execution at any time, but by God's goodness and providence, he showed Joseph favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. And eventually Joseph was raised up into a position of great prominence and leadership and influence throughout Egypt. Meanwhile, a terrible famine came upon Joseph's homeland. And his brothers were starving. And they came to Egypt looking for food and help and rescue. And to their immense surprise, they encountered Joseph. And Joseph was able there now to show them kindness and to deliver them in their hour of need. But, but do you know what response they had when they first saw Joseph? When they first found their brother in this, this place of, of great influence. They were incredibly fearful because they knew that the evil that they inflicted upon Joseph, he, he could very well inflict vengeance upon them and return that evil back. But here is Here's Joseph's response, Genesis 50, verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What is Joseph's perspective on the evil that was done to him by his brothers? He says that this evil was purposefully willed by God. But God's intention in it was ultimately good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, he says. And what was that good? It was to put Joseph in a place so that he could eventually rescue and deliver his family. So that he someday could help them in their distress. God purposefully willed that this evil be done to Joseph so that someday great good could result. So that someday Joseph could be their savior and rescue their lives. And that's one powerful and clear example of how God purposefully uses evil to accomplish good, but it's not the greatest one. The greatest example of this happened on Calvary itself. Listen to Peter's words in the book of Acts as he teaches the people about the crucifixion of Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. According to Peter, who willfully planned and decreed Christ's death? God did. It couldn't be more clear. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The Father sent Jesus to suffer evil. The Father decreed that Jesus would be mistreated and tortured and spat upon and ridiculed and killed. And there is no more wicked act in all of human history than the mistreatment and crucifixion of Christ. Because there is no one who is more innocent or more undeserving of this treatment than Jesus. Who is perfect and sinless and never deserved to be the recipient of evil. Yet God purposefully willed that that evil happen to his own beloved son. How could a good and sovereign God, how how could a, a loving and wise father permit this to happen even to his own son? Or two chapters later, Peter and John make a similar statement in prayer when they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. These wicked men, Herod and Pontius Pilate, merely did what God had purposefully willed them to do. 
The text says that they did what the power, what the father's power and will had decided beforehand should happen to kill his one and only beloved son in the most gruesome, cruel, horrendous, evil way possible. The crucifixion of Christ was the most horrendous, wicked, evil act in all of human history, and God purposefully willed it. How could a good God do that? He could do it because it's also the most glorious act in all of human history. Because no act has produced more wonderful and and good results than the suffering of our Savior on Calvary. God purposely wills evil to happen because he uses evil to accomplish good. We see this in the story of Joseph. We see it all throughout examples in the Old Testament. And we see it culminate entirely in the crucifixion of Christ. But why would God use evil like this? Why, Why not just bring about the good without the evil? Why not just, again, start things off in the new heavens and the new earth without having to go through all this stuff? Here's the simple answer to that question. There are many good things about God that we just cannot know without the experience of evil. There are many good things about God we cannot know without the experience of evil. Imagine for a moment that sin never entered the world. That God never embarked on this great drama of redemption. And all we have ever known was the new heavens and the new earth. We never knew sin. We never knew evil. We never knew suffering, despair, hardship, persecution, trials, disappointment, grief. How then would we ever really know of God's grace? How would we ever really know of God's forgiveness? How would we ever know that he is merciful, patient, and kind? And that he loves us so incredibly that he would give himself for us? You see, if, there were not, if it were not for evil and sin, God, God could never show us patience or mercy or, or forgiveness or grace or the depths of his love. There would be no context for him to express these things about himself. He, he could tell us that he was forgiving and merciful, but, the, but there would be nothing to forgive. So we couldn't personally really experience that, or we couldn't praise him for forgiving us himself. We could never experience that aspect of his person. We, we could never be recipients of God's gracious forgiveness or compassion or mercy. We need a contrast. We need evil so that God can act and rescue us from that evil. Because only in that rescue can God then be fully known. So the personal experience of evil is necessary for many good things to happen. Most specifically, the full exposure of who God is and our ability to see him in all of his glories. And imagine how much richer your worship will be in the new heavens and the new earth because of your experience of evil and suffering here. You will realize then how good you have it. And you won't take the glories of heaven for granted. You'll be able to look back and see God's tremendous sustaining hand helping you through those trials and eventually bringing you into this place where you you will forever praise God for how he's forgiven you and blessed you and rescued you. You see, if there wasn't sin and evil in this world, we wouldn't have the same need for God. We would certainly need him, for sure, but not in the same way. We wouldn't need Christ's atonement. And Christian, what are you most grateful to God for? What are you most inclined to worship God for? Is it perhaps the fact that he's rescued you from evil and suffering and from sin? Isn't it true that your experience of evil and suffering in this world is now giving you a perspective that will fuel your worship for eternity? I believe that it is. And that, my friends, is the ultimate good that God is working to bring about through evil. Evil allows God to fully express himself and to be known in a way that would simply be impossible in a perfect utopia. 
And in that, he equips us for worship. And that brings great glory to himself. And while that might seem hard to swallow now, because sometimes the evil in this world, it is so great, and sometimes the suffering we face ourselves, it is so hard, we must remember this final point, that from God's perspective, the corruption of his creation will only last a short time. Soon he will create the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no evil there for all of eternity. See, evil is a tool in the hand of God that he uses to make himself fully known. But it is a tool that he will only use for a very, very short time in the expanse of eternity. And so he purposefully willed Adam and Eve to sin so that he could eventually send Christ, so that through the cross he could show us abundant grace and love, and he still permits evil to exist today because he is in the process of continually revealing to us personally who he is. Yet it is important to remember that this experience of evil will be an incredibly short period of time in the cosmic scale of eternity. Because soon, very soon, all of this evil will end. God will make all things new and we will always be able to look back on those experiences and those memories of evil and that will better equip us to say, my God, how good you are. I hope that this way of thinking has helped you somewhat consider this perplexing problem of evil. These thoughts, answers, as helpful as I personally find them to be, they certainly do still leave some elements of mystery. God's relationship with evil, it is always hard to grasp. And it will always require some faith on our part. And so, this explanation is not complete. But I hope that it is sufficient enough for you to trust God in, in this. And remain firm in your faith so that even though you see great evil happening in the world, you can still believe that God is in control and is perfectly good. And so let me close with a few final application thoughts for you as we live in this temporary world of evil. Three things, really. First, have faith when evil comes, knowing that everything falls under the sovereign reign of a good God. We will all face evil of many forms. But when we do, don't despair. God is still on the throne. He is still sovereign. Nothing happens that in his goodness and wisdom he does not specifically permit to take place. Thus, he's guiding and shaping all of human history in a way that will accomplish his purposes, which is ultimately good. In all of this, he is good. Remember the, word, the wonderful promise of Romans 8.28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So when evil comes, know it falls under the sovereign reign of God. And second, look for good things that God might accomplish through evil. When we're confronted with horrific evil, it's easy to sometimes just to throw up our hands and say, no good can come from this. Nothing good can come from this. But friends, we ought not to say that. That is not only a lack of faith, it is simply not true. Take, for example, the plight that many of us have followed recently of Chris and Eva Carr, the Carr family. Chris, a former pastor here, Eva, a former staff person here, many of you know they have adopted two young children from China, about the age three, one of which had a terrible heart defect. And I have to, many of you know, I have to sadly share with you, after a long and valiant battle, there, this one girl, Zoe, with this heart problem, after many surgeries, uh, passed away. 
uh, just this past, uh, past day or two. She fought a long and hard, valiant battle, but her heart just simply wasn't strong enough. And that is, is tragic, sad, really evil news for sure. And it's broken the Carr family uh, terribly with sadness, and you should be praying for them. But, but don't be sad for Zoe, this three-year-old girl who died. I, I think we can be confident that she's with the Lord now. And if she was asked, hey, would you want to go back? She would absolutely refuse. Because she now sees her Savior face to face. And there is nothing better than that. True be sad for Chris and Eva and their entire family as they deal with this grief. Pray for them. But God can't produce good things through this, can he? It's hard to realize that now because the pain is so raw and so real. But, but can't you see how God might teach some things to people through this? Can't you see how God will reveal himself? To people through this? How he might bless people through this? It's a tragedy for sure. Evil always is. But look for the good things that God might accomplish through the evil. And in that you can find hope. Finally, have hope for the future knowing that this fallen world is not our forever home. A time is coming when those who are in Christ will know, not know evil anymore. There are a few things you can be sure of, but one thing you can be sure of almost more than anything else is this, that God cannot and will not permit a corrupted world like this to continue on forever. Someday, Christian, you will have a new world where evil is but a distant memory, but it will still be a memory because that memory will fuel our worship for eternity as we reflect on God's saving grace and goodness and compassion and restoration of us. So endure this life with faith. But, but, but someday, someday soon, we will all be able to look back on it. And it will make better sense than it ever has before. And we'll be able to say from that vantage point of heaven, with perfect confidence, Lord, that was hard. But my God, how good you are. Amen. And let's pray. Our Father, we come as a people in need of help because this world is so hard and there is so many things that cause us grief and hurt and pain and just confuse us as we see the enemy apparently winning in so many ways. But God, build our faith to know that the enemy is not winning. He is defeated. And that God, he never stood a chance because you are ultimately sovereign and good over everything and nothing happens apart from your holy will. And so build within us then, God, confidence that we do not despair, but we have hope. We do not grieve and mourn, but that we cling to your promises and, that, and your truth that you are a sovereign, good God in whom we trust everything. And we look forward to that day, God, when we'll be able to see with perfect clarity you and Jesus and, and the meaning and the purpose of our whole life with all of its suffering and hardship and evil. In the meantime, help us to persevere and please you as we go through this journey, awaiting its appointed end by faith. We ask all this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.